0: The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Breaking Down, and I'm your host, Ali Colbert. And today on the show, we have Moshe Kasher. He's coming on to chat all about his book, Subculture Vulture. Really fucking interesting life this guy has had, like quite a life he's brilliant. I love talking to him about uh, growing up and being in AA early and his relationship with the rave scene and music um, and uh, being a child of deaf adults, um, his Jewishness. It's a beautiful, varied episode and really fascinating. He's so fun to talk to. You really can like learn a lot just listening to this guy. Just listening to this guy, you can learn a lot. Um, So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, You can get his book now. It's out now, Subculture Vulture. Moshe is a hilarious stand-up comedian. I've worked with a bunch. And um, it's great. I, uh, I'm uh, i chilling. I'm chilling, you guys. I was thinking recently... I like Billie Eilish's music a lot. And I was thinking recently about how it's like a little bit strange that she records all that stuff with her brother. You know? Like her and her brother are just jamming in her bedroom while she's like, and I'm a bad girl. And he's like... Nah, nah. Like it's a little... I don't know that I'd want that sibling relationship, but like it's hey, it's getting her Grammys. Um, that's it. I've been I watched the new Wonka movie, Timothy Chalamet and Kylie Jenner. Like, that still blows my mind. Like, he's gotta have a huge dick, right? That's all it is. Is that all it is? Is that like the the subtext that he just has a huge cock? I think so. Okay. Enjoy the show. Email us, breaking down at spotify.com take a screenshot of yourself listening throw it up on your story go crazy subscribe email us just love us like help us help me to help you
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery.
2: Let's discuss my newest prize possession this new $10 scratch off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot.
0: Podcasting is just like a hang. It is a ha-
1: you're always podcasting.
0: I this week I'm definitely always podcasting.
1: What are you talking about?
0: This the book. Tell the, me
1: all about the book.
0: You want the spiel?
1: Let's just do it. Just talk about the book for an hour, and I'll listen.
0: <laughs> oh god, it's funny because when you do these, like, you know, this book is like that was the first thing that I sold, the first job I had in the pandemic. Do you remember the pandemic? I the, remember it. The fake, like the the whole fake thing. That yeah. We all pretended to be down with, but really we agitated. And then we went to Gen- to the Capitol on January 6th.
1: Yeah, you, you remember. You were there.
0: I was there.
1: I saw you. It was
0: so cool. We Dude, had like that a kind fun. of fun. We had kind of a meet cute there. Do you remember? No, that was
1: yeah. I remember that.
0: It was cool because I was like, y-. and then you were like, like, you
1: did comedy.
0: You do comedy. I did comedy did. there. Yeah, I was. You know that I was. I did a set. Yeah. After Trump. Yeah. Uh, so the crowd was pretty agitated. mm Hmm. But then I, they were like, "Can you calm them down and stuff?" And I was like, "Oh, you don't come to me to calm them down, you know?"
1: No, that's like everyone's like, "He'll rile them up."
0: I riled them up, and and with the like, my, you know, my comedy is all about like free speech. Yeah, that's like the only thing that I've ever talked about, cancel culture. And yeah, no, speech. I wanted to
1: talk about that with you also.
0: Oh, you were gonna bring that up? Yeah. Uh, okay, so anyway, fast forward. Um, the pandemic like
1: they rioted to get you to stop performing. Yeah, they day. hated
0: this. it was They're such just a bad fucking the Capitol! <laughs> he was supposed to do 15 minutes.
1: He's blowing the light. <laughs> Go in.
0: That would be a real harsh referendum on my comedy if people were, were like doing like Viking uh you know tree trunks to a uh, the Capitol windows to get away from one of my sets.
1: It would wouldn't it be a great clip? Capital gets stormed to stop comedians.
0: Yes. From... Com- <laughs> comedian destroys capital.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Um, anyway, the pandemic, like as I'm sure you felt the same thing. I was like, what am I gonna do? I've been working on stages for, you know, twenty years and there are no stages. And then I sold this book and it was like it was the thing that I was like, Okay, I'm gonna be okay. Like I'll I'll be able to buy food for my my little daughter. Yeah. And um, and so my whole, my, the whole pandemic was spent, like, you went to college, right?
1: I did go to college. You
0: remember that feeling where you were, like, in your dorm room, like, with books stacked up, and you're, yeah. like, pulling an all-nighter? I thought I was, like, done with that, but I, that was my whole pandemic, was just, like, research books arriving from Amazon, like, stacking up higher and higher, and, oh uh,
1: What were you researching?
0: Well, the, the. Isn't this about your life? It's about my life, but I, researching yeah. Researching your own life. Yeah, I, like, wikipedia myself, um, I called my mom, and I asked her to write a book, and, uh. <laughs> Send it in Amazon. Then I had to order it. We're not in direct contact. (laughs) We've got like a social worker that we have to communicate. Yeah. No, it is about my life. It's a memoir of my life, but it's through the. It's also a history. Uh, It's through the lens of the six subcultures that have kind of just defined my life and made me who I am. And so each section, it's a. It's called subculture ultra memoir in six scenes, and each scene is uh, a scene that kind of formed a little bit of the DNA that, that is me now. Mm -hmm. And those are AA and the 12 steps. When I was, uh, 15 years old, I got out of rehab for the last time, 15 years old. And I've been sober ever since. And for about 20 years, I was like a real fundamentalist, like AA member right in the center of that world, specifically in the center of the world of, of young people's AA, which is like a subset of AA that people don't really know about. But I was fifteen when I got sober, and I was the youngest person at every meeting I ever went to by a decade and the, right. and I would go to young people's meetings and the, the people there were like they were elderly they were yeah. like twenty five yeah 26. I, I
1: mean that's it was just you and drew Barrymore
0: that's right me and drew and then uh and then at about six months nine months sober i like decided I wanted to try to figure out how to have a social a, bar mitzvah. A social, a bar mitzvah yeah. They give everybody an AA a bar mitzvah. <laughs> it's a really cool thing. They put you on a chart. You can't drink the Manishevitz. They bring you only Ketam wine.
1: Oh um, well I have to okay. Well go into your subcultures and then I'll go into each subculture. All
0: right so okay there's too many.
1: it's so, like I need a chart.
0: So well there's a chart here. Right, there's okay. literally a chart. Can I have it? We can yeah you can yeah. And then they, we'll put it back. Did they send it to you? They didn't even send it they to me. They didn't you. send it to me. Oh well I'm you know what I'm gonna do for you right now?
1: Yeah uh, give it to me? I'm
0: gonna break it all down. So I went to AA, and I got sober when I was 15, and I spent a, a, a lot of my formative years there. Yeah. And then when I was about nine months sober, I was like, I, I need a life. Like, I need to figure out how to, like, be a regular teenager and do teenage things. But my, my whole life up until that point was just, like, wannabe gangster, like, white boy identity crisis, getting high and tagging and breaking windows and getting arrested and yeah. going to mental hospitals. So that's no life. So I found—I saw on a poll— that There there was a rave called Cyberfest 95, and I thought, I'm going to go to a rave. That's going to be my thing. Okay. And so I went by myself to this rave when I was 16 years old, and I walked into that first party and, like, had a full, clean and sober, yeah. a full molecular reconfiguration. Like, I was a different person when I walked out of that warehouse than I was when I walked in and dedicated my 20s to that scene. I was a rave promoter and a DJ and an ecstasy dealer, clean and sober ecstasy dealer, um for years and then because of the rave scene, so that's scene two, because yeah. of the rave scene, I heard that there was like a rave in the desert happening and that I, that uh, we should go. And that was all I needed to go. I was such a crazy, hardcore raver. Like if there were, I would drive six hours on the rumor of a rave. So that's what I did. <laughs> I jumped in my car. I drove with a bunch of other rave scumbags and we uh, paid 60 bucks to get into Burning Man in 1996.
1: Oh, my God. When
0: I was 16 years old. And last year I went uh, to Burning Man for the 24th time. I've been going there since '96, and I used to work there. I worked; uh, I was part of the infrastructure that put the event on for a long time. And then eventually, uh, I started uh, stand-up comedy. And so that's that's Burning Man is scene three, scene four is stand-up comedy, which we share the world that we share, yeah, um, where we we connect on that level, and then we're going to connect on this next level. Tell me, you're gay. I'm. (laughs) That's the epilogue. The epilogue is all of these subculture. I'm, honestly, there, there's not a lot gayer than Raves and Burning Man. Okay. Um, Jewish. J- yes, I am Jewish. Yes. and And not just Jewish. My father, when my mother left him, uh, became like a born-again Hasidic Jew and was like in one of the most hardcore Hasidic Jewish communities called the Satmar Hasidim. Uh, and our family's from an even more hardcore uh, sect called the Skver Hasidim, who do not, the women do not drive. In New Square, New York. This wow. is New York. New York. Women do not drive. There's not like sentries. Yeah. They won't stop you if you drove in. Yes. But the women there, they don't drive. They speak. Everybody in my neighborhood growing up spoke Yiddish as a first language. And I— But would, not in
1: your New York. You grew up in the Bay Area.
0: Exactly. I would spend, I'm on my shit. You are on your shit. Yeah, you're breaking it all down. <laughs> I just blow my brains out (laughs) and then I take over your podcast welcome (laughs) it's just and then we just keep doing the podcast but every single episode is me plugging my book (laughs) years after it's come out no one the listenership dwindles to absolute. just your producer Um, you're right I would spend nine months a year a regular secular kid in Oakland public schools listening to hip-hop and uh, you know uh, just a regular fully regular California kid no Jewish life whatsoever I always say like I have a, a simultaneously a much more and much less Jewish upbringing than all of my Jewish friends mm. because I didn't go to camp and I didn't have like Jewish friends and I didn't have a Jewish identity. But six weeks a year, I would fly back to New York and cosplay as an extra on the set of Fiddler on the Roof and, and literally just live in a, in, in a shtetl.
1: And um, that's when you're with your dad.
0: That's when I was with my dad.
1: Where is that area in New York? Is that, I only know Muncie.
0: So I got family in Muncie. Okay. Okay. I straight. I do have family in Muncie. Square is just outside of Muncie.
1: Okay. It's by like Monticello, New York. Uh,
0: I don't know. I only ever went to Muncie. Okay. It was like a dread. That was a dread drive for me.
1: Yeah. I, because
0: I, I could feel the impending. They were. They were nice. My family was nice. They were not mean, but they were. I mean, they were really intense. Um, and when we would go to Square, I went to Square and I got a a, a blessing from the Square Rebbe. Uh, who's like the big the big man of yeah. Square? Yeah. Here's an interesting fact about Square. Yeah. Just to give you a taste of how intense that community is. Uh-huh. When Hillary Clinton,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know who Hillary Clinton is. I do. He's she Why did she who, pick up the
1: call? Vince Foster.
0: She is who we were trying to stop that day. I did my epic set that yeah. ended in a riot. When Hillary Clinton was running for senator of New York, mm-hmm. of citizens of New Square, New York, or close enough to it that it statistically doesn't matter, voted for Hillary Clinton. In an unrelated story, Bill Clinton pardoned uh, one of the elders in the New Square community for a Pell Grant scandal uh, a year after that. So this is how, that's what a Rebbe is, right? Yeah. A rabbi, but you know, a rabbi can give you advice. A Rebbe can say, we're voting for Hillary Clinton. That's right. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that is scene five. And... The other, the other, and find, and, and these are the less of the sceney scenes of mm-hmm. the of the last two. They're more of the what I was born into. My mother, my father, the Hasidic one, uh, my stepmother, the, my step sister, my half sister, my half brothers, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. Everybody, uh, uh is deaf. The whole family's deaf.
1: I, how do how, I don't even how does what is growing up with two deaf parents like?
0: Well, I'll tell you, it was good, what was good about it was um when I started DJing, uh, I could like practice. Like full on, full volume, just like I had. There was a rave going on in my house every day. My mom was just like doing the dishes and whistling, and she didn't whistle, but you know, you get the idea. She yeah. she didn't care. Um, well, growing up with deaf parents is like you know people always ask me that question, uh, and it's I don't have an answer because it's uh, I mean, what was it like growing up with hearing parents? I've yeah. never had that experience, and the only thing I it's the only thing I ever knew. I yeah. I can tell you the parts that like stick out, which are that you know I love my mother and my dad, and I'm super fiercely proud of the deaf community and the fact that I'm a member of it and the fact that I'm fluent in sign language and the crazy journey that the deaf uh, community has gone through I'll tell you about that if you have time but mm-hmm. but I also was grew up and was very embarrassed that my mother talked funny and that yeah. people would turn and look when I'd walk when she'd speak and I'd never wanted her to come see me at school and like that was you know and we i have this memory of pulling up to a like ranger station at a campground and the ranger like reaching over my mother to hand me the campground paperwork and, and say can your mother read and she's like driving the car <laughs> it's right. like yeah she can you know she can she's driving what do you thought she was what, she doesn't know what stop means like yeah. just hand her the thing like so there was a lot of that shame and uh pride all kind of weirdly mixed in yeah. you know
1: yeah
0: um it, it, my brother is not deaf and my my, gra- my maternal grandmother isn't, but everybody going down the line is deaf. And I was born into that world. Are s- you deaf? Uh, I am o- only in my hip hop spirit. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but I was a sign language interpreter for 15 years. I spoke, I signed before I could talk. Um, and I'm a deaf, I'm a member of the deaf community. I can say that. As one of the guys that blurbed the book said, now DeMarco, who's himself deaf, and he's like the America's top model. Do you remember him? Mm -mm. Like a super hunky deaf guy. He wrote a book called Deaf Utopia.
1: Oh, I know that book. Yeah. yeah. Do you really? No, I do. I've heard that.
0: So he, this is, I think a very, this is high praise. I think he says, uh, a culture, all seen through the unique lens of a culturally deaf individual who also happens to be hearing. Mm. And that's like who I am, not who I am. That's who, CODAs are, children of deaf adults. We are in this very strange way, like uh, born into, it's like being born white in Wakanda. You know, it's like we're there and we're a member of the community, but we're also a member of the opposition party, if that makes sense. And so I was born in that world. I signed before I could talk. And all of those six universes have been really foundational, kind of like building blocks to who I am.
1: My God. You are more fascinating than any male comedian I've ever spoken to. <laughs>
0: right? I
1: mean, that's...
0: At least I think I'm fascinating because I wrote a whole freaking so book about it. Oh, so
1: interesting. That's so many lives.
0: It is a lot of lives. I, I yeah. can't
1: imagine them all converging, but they converge in you.
0: I think, like, I didn't even quite know what the through line was. Yeah. Because I knew that I lived in these kind of disparate, separate worlds that had all been so unbelievably meaningful to me. But I was like, what's the through line? And the through line... At the end of the book, I look and realize it's very obvious. The through line is me. It's I am the connective tissue between these worlds. And they synthesize in this way that it feels like they don't go together. But for me, like they go together perfectly. They fit in this. And I think if I have anything like philosophical to say in the book, it's mm-hmm. that, that like everybody's lives is, at least from my generation, is this. Your life is this like pinball game where you you don't know where you're headed and you never have any clue. Everything feels like kind of chaos. Uh, and, and you're just like slamming from thing to thing. Mine are a little more extreme, yeah. but like, then you get a little bit older and you look back and you realize like everything is, it's like destiny in reverse. I don't really believe in destiny, but I believe in destiny in the, in the rear view mirror. Like you look back and you go, Whoa. This was the path that I was on, and it led me to here. It led me to, you know, to you. It led me to not being able to uh, actually park in the Spotify parking lot and get my parking validated. But who knows? I could walk outside, and I could, you know, uh, uh, I could meet my second wife. You just don't know. Like, everything (laughs) is this weird uh, road less traveled.
1: I totally agree. It's uh, my favorite. When people ask me what's the best advice I've ever heard, I think about Steve Jobs in his commencement speech. I think it was for Chicago University of the Arts when he says you can only the dots retrospectively.
0: That's it. Yes.
1: And so whatever, You're giving
0: me jobs bumps over here. No,
1: so it's true. So whatever it is that you're choosing to believe in to kind of lead you, whether that is destiny or fate or your gut or whatever, faith, I, I do feel that. Obviously, we're meaning-making machines and we right. can look back and say, well, this and this and this, but it all makes sense looking back.
0: The explanation, if you're a believer in destiny
1: mm-hmm.
0: or God or like universe made this, I was headed there, or you're a materialist and you go no this was random neither are less breathtaking they're both equally like unbelievable if you had a force that was driving you towards where you were supposed to go that's like an unbelievable uh uh thing it means that your pain and your suffering and your and your triumph and your glory all of it is is it, it has meaning and if it has no meaning it's equally breathtaking it's like you mean to tell me that like all of these things that we experience in life that lead us to where we we are going just happen through complete ripples in the pond like timeline of randomness and then I meet my wife and then I divorce my wife and then i meet, you know like all of this stuff is random that to me is also like beautiful and breathtaking and amazing
1: that's beautiful you keep bringing up divorcing your wife
0: No, oh, that is true I realized as soon as the I ripped second it joke twice about, yeah. yeah I'm in a very very troubled marriage right now <laughs> and I didn't want to bring it up but it seems like I'm gonna be doing that
1: the nothingness of that makes me I think I'm even more affected by that. That kind of makes you think it's me more cry. beautiful. That that it's all nothing.
0: It's that's it, really if sad. This, if it's sad, but if this is nothing, if this is random, like I, I don't every time I start getting into this like waxing uh like philosophical I like, imagine the person like rolling their eyes Who cares? Going, like but but
1: then they're not our listener.
0: that's so true. You should log off. actually, don't actually subscribe to the page
1: subscribe to, to the, subscribe
0: to the page subscribe to the patreon for Hit sure, but up. then log the fuck off and go get a spirit of of uh positivity in your life. but I think there's something like, yes, it's sad if everything is just a careening sort of ball of nothing slamming from wall to wall, but it's also like that's wild that randomness could create this kind of beauty. I mean that's the universe, right? I feel like, okay, anyway. But that's the universe. Yeah. The universe sort of just all of a sudden there was a weird chemical reaction and there was a Big Bang that just hurled all of the material in the universe was contained in a pinhead worth of uh, worth of density, uh, infinite density. And then that created San Francisco and Baguettes and Paris and your podcast and uh, Mars. And, and uh, Subculture Vulture. And Subculture Vulture.
1: Do, do you think that the universe, like, uh, we're getting off, but do, that, like, you know, the universe is created because of the Big Bang or whatever, And then obviously the sun's going to burn out. Everyone's going to die. Everything explodes. And then that just keeps repeating and there's no beginning or end to time. And this is just kind of this iteration of life.
0: You mean that eventually all the stuff folds back into the little pinprick and we all begin again? Yeah. Well, there is this idea that do I believe that? I have no fucking idea. No, I don't. That I don't, was
1: my first question for you. <laughs> I'm
0: sorry, I got us off track. Let's start with the with the, the uh, material death of the universe and what happens next.
1: I just like there's probably I don't think there's really a beginning and end to time.
0: Well, you know this is gonna this is gonna fuck your butt. Let's fucking go. Let's do this. I found out that, um, and this is not something I learned because I'm smart. I heard a podcast and a guy came on my podcast called Sean Carroll. He's a theoretical physicist Mm -hmm. that for all intents and purposes, space, that is, if you, you know, jump up high enough and you get into the cold darkness of space where Mars lives and time, that is, you know, the thing that made your grandma be born and then eventually die. Mm -hmm. If your grandma's dead, if she's not, may she live to be 120, Mm -hmm. uh, is the same thing. Space, you know, they always say space-time. They yeah. say that on purpose because space and time are inextricably linked. They're basically the same thing. And that—does that make—
1: How is that? How well, the now
0: we're thing? getting into the area where I should say I'm just a comedian and an author. You're not, I don't you're not
1: totally clear on how that is.
0: Well, you know, they, they, that idea like, oh, well, what happened before the Big Bang? Right. And people say that doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, the Bible says uh, chaos, it was chaos and void, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Tohu vovohu. Um, but that's a it's a—it's a wrong question. To say what happened before the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Because there was no before. Because time began when the Big Bang went pop. Right? Right. So that time and space as the universe the, oh. the universe expanding is a physical manifestation representation of, time. of what time is. And so it's the same thing in this crazy fucked up way.
1: Whoa. You should start people asking people what space is it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> what space you got? What space you got? Oh, no. Oh, it's, it's oh, already Andromeda. I, I can't do this. I'm late. I'm late.
1: Um, okay. That's trippy.
2: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no. The perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now.
1: I'm going to try and move us through the subcultures of your life. Let's do this. Okay, you grew up in the Bay Area. Yes. By 15, you're in AA?
0: By 15, actually...
1: Or you're leaving rehab, you said?
0: The the truth is, by 15, I... I, I went to AA and said, help. I already was in AA because I started going to rehab. I'm from that generation. Uh, the, the, we, I was raised in the wake of the Just Say No, Nancy Reagan, the rehab generation. Mm-hmm. Like everybody, that was the beginning of let's medicate every kid. Let's send every troubled kid to rehab. Let's send them to Utah and have them like have an ex-Marine scream in their face and then hand them a pickaxe and yeah. say this is the road to manhood. Like that's the, the universe and the generation that I come from. And so I went to rehab for the first time when I was 13, like a year into drinking and getting high, because that was the answer for parents of that time. Like, send the kid to rehab. Nancy Reagan says it. Let's let that. Let's fucking go. They would say. Even. Did you need
1: it? Were Ye- you? A yes. Kid? Yeah.
0: Yes. I. What, what I needed was going it. on? This is one of the questions that I ask in the book. Now I'm I'm 44, mm-hmm. right? And now I'm looking back and I go, Was I a drug addict? Like, is that what that was, or was it just a manifestation of? like all the chaos that had been that my life was and that and then it it just it came out in the form of like a wild like you know sort of druggy boy like like what i can say is this i've worked with uh with teenagers um a lot uh as a sign language interpreter i would go to like middle schools and um and and work with kids that were my age and i always had this like I have a very interesting relationship with like uh, adolescence, teenage adolescence, because it's like these are really primal, foundational years for me, but I guess for everybody else. And I would work at a middle school. I would like look at the kids and I would go, um, are they like, was I like that? And mm-hmm. the answer is like, no, I was really fucked up. I was really a wild, fucked up kid. So I had something more than I think a normal teenager for sure. I would yeah. But was I did I need rehab? <clears throat> I needed something. And that was the form that the something took.
1: Where was the, the edge from you coming from? Were you, was your, were your parents happy at that time or they had already were split or?
0: No, I, uh, no, nobody was happy. Uh, <laughs> nobody, nobody was, was happy. I was born, uh, in, in a, in a family on the edge for sure. Yeah. I mean, a, and my mom. And
1: you're an only child. I no,
0: I, got, I have a brother. Oh, you
1: have a brother. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Your brother becomes a rabbi, right? My
0: brother. Yeah. He's in here. He's in this subculture over here somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Brother rabbi, son, com- uh, other brother comedian.
1: Is he going hard in the paint, like as a kid?
0: Currently, as a, as a rabbi, he goes very hard in the paint. Yeah. He, no, he's no, like one of the he... hardest in the paint rabbis. Uh huh. But the paint is blue and white. Got it. Um, <laughs> does my brother become like me?
1: Is your, are you like the, the black sheep at that time?
0: I'm the identified patient, as they would say in the therapy that I was force fed from the time I was four years old. Wow. I was the identified patient. My brother would always, it was so funny because it was like, my brother would always be like, dude, why don't you just, he's like, our parents are deaf. Like, you can get away with murder if you just chilled out a little bit. He's like, you're getting caught all the time. And then I would say to him, you don't even know how much shit I'm doing. I never get caught, statistically. Yeah. The amount you think. I, I get caught only when I get caught. I'm doing shit all the time. What and, are you doing? Oh, you know, uh, drugs-wise or just I don't know. I just, I just want
1: to get paint a picture of what you're people always ask me what to. kind of drugs were well, you doing? Well, I know you said you're drinking, but what, do you, what is the bad shit you're doing?
0: Well, violence. Uh, violence. Uh, um, violence, war war i was involved in some um some, some uh, paramilitary stuff
1: wow okay
0: uh, no you know uh, regular juvenile delinquent stuff yeah. like uh getting arrested all the time tagging fighting gang shit that yeah. was fake gang you know like here's a cool thing about being uh like white and, and being in a gang mm-hmm. i don't know if you know this no i don't you could just be a gang there's no board there's no, you don't have to apply. You don't have to pass anything. You just be like, be a gang. So we decided we were a gang she one day. You just be a gang. It was the most pathetic group. I mean, it, listen, here, here's the real reality.
2: Yeah.
0: I was from this set of circumstances where my parents are deaf and my dad's this Jewish guy. My parents hate each other. And they tell my dad that, you know, my mom, my mom tells me that my dad loves me less than my brother because I don't know what. And she starts sending me to therapy when I'm four. And, you know, I, uh, we're we're poor, raised on welfare, and I'm one of the lone white boys in Oakland Public School. All these things are things that— a set of circumstances that is a weird backdrop for mm-hmm. a life. But, like, they don't explain why I became the way I became because my brother had the same set of circumstances and he found a way to just, like, be okay, be a straight-A student and kind of go soft in the pain.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, me, I felt, like, painfully alone and different and never felt like I fit in and never felt like— part of it was my mom telling me that like she started to see in the very beginning that i was this wild kid and she started shunting me to therapy like almost immediately and so then you get this feedback loop where the therapist is telling you there's something wrong with you learning disabilities uh psychological disorders i was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder uh, conduct disorder adhd depression uh you know oh my god everything every everything that you would give a kid like that and then I found these, you know, I, I stole a pack of Camel Wides one day and this guy saw me stealing them or saw me smoking them outside of the the Safeway or whatever and was just like, what's up, dude? You seem cool. You smoke. That's sick. Come to the back of the portables and meet the other derelicts. And so I went to the back of the portables and got high with them for the first time. And like, that was the first time I didn't feel that feeling of painful difference, painful separation. Yeah, I was like, I have found the other broken toys of, of Oakland, and I feel okay. Right. And the problem with that is, you know, when you're, you know, getting high is the first thing that's ever made you feel okay, and you're 13, 12, 13 years old, there was no part of me that was developed enough to say, let me take this easy. I, like, jumped in, and by the time I was 15, I had just gone so hard that it had dried up.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's you don't know how to learn how to self-soothe. That's how you're regulating your nervous system as like a 12-year-old.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't even uh, self-soothing in the most classic way until a year after that. I mean, it's, this is literally prepubescent.
1: Yeah, that's it's crazy. It is wild. So when you then get clean or sober, whatever you want to call it, I don't know what you're saying. You're, Either I, thing works. You know what I mean? It all works. Like, did, do you then feel like you're acting out less? or you attributing it to that? Or is it that when you find, like, music and this rave scene, then that's, like, really kind of, like, supporting you? In well, you know?
0: it was a kind of a one-two punch, actually. I, yeah. I got out of rehab because I had this, like, realization, which was— um if i if i and by the way the 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 book takes me takes you through the journey of of me getting sober it starts the day i get sober mm. my last book catcher in the rye mm-hmm. kind of ends the day before i get sober mm-hmm. so this is what happened next okay. kind of. um and and i walked into a meeting a young people's meeting and i raised my hand and i was like i need help and then i got up and i walked out of the room which is like kind of a classic uh, way to ask for help. You're like, I need some help. And if you can offer it, I'll be out in the hallway just chilling, shooting dice or whatever. But this guy like followed me outside. And his name was Pigeon. Uh, and <laughs> uh, and he put his arms around me. The older guy. I mean, you know, I thought he was older. I think he was probably 27. And he was like, it's going to be okay. Yeah. And that's not like high-level advice. That does not have the profundity of space and time are the same thing and do you think that at the material death of the universe it will just recreate itself it's pretty like low level yeah it's gonna be okay yeah like that's not even he's not even trying
1: yeah there's not much for you to grab onto there
0: but I did I like grabbed onto it it was like enough it was just like somehow this guy like wrapping his arms around me and hugging me I just was like I.
1: everyone needs a pigeon
0: everybody needs a pigeon yeah
1: that's beautiful
0: and then I walked back in the meeting and I like started putting together days like that was like day one and you know I I would they start they start by telling you like the most again everything's base level one day at a time Mm -hmm. right is like the classic you know axiom of AA but it's like it's powerful actually since space is so infinite and the universe is expanding forever you go I can't stay sober I can't do this I'm incapable of this but somebody goes okay what about just can you do it? Can you wait till tomorrow? You go, yeah, I can fucking wait till tomorrow. Yeah. That's not the issue. The issue is my life is so unbelievably painful. Like, I can't live in this world without like this medicine. And they go, yeah, but just till tomorrow, you could go to bed tonight without getting high. I go, yes, yes, motherfucker, I could do that. But you're not listening to the problem. Yeah. I go, well, just go to bed. You get high tomorrow. I go, really? You get high tomorrow? I was like, oh, AA rules. So I didn't know you could get high tomorrow. Yeah. And then you do it, you stay sober until you go to bed and then you wake up. And you go, fuck, yeah, I'm ready. It's tomorrow. And they go, oh, wait, no, it's today again. No! And then you just start putting together these days. And then a day becomes a month, and a month becomes three months, and three months becomes nine months, and then you buy a ticket to Cyberfest. And anyway, I'm trying to say, (laughs) what I'm trying to say is, like, I started these building blocks of, like, uh, you know, getting my rage under control, getting my my uh, the acute status of, uh, of just being an out of control like psychological like miscreant, mm-hmm. that started to heal in AA uh, just by doing the stuff that they told me to do, but I had this other part of me that was like super unhealed that I didn't realize till I literally till I walked into that rave. I walked into that first party and I was in line. I remember I had a, a escape. How old are you? You're- Thirty. Do you remember Escape? It might have been No. It's a Cologne by Calvin Klein. Okay. It, was, it was for I believe it was for any I believe it was Unisex. I believe oh maybe a lot that of was those were unisex. One. Yeah, oh, CK one's unisex. CK one was the classic unisex. Remember when that blew people's minds? People were like, how could it be unisex? <laughs> it cannot be. <laughs> <laughs> like, fast forward 30 years, like, I couldn't the non-binary that I revolution. I like, know. we couldn't even deal with a cologne that anyone could spray on themselves. It's I no know. wonder people are having a hard time with gender deconstruction. For
1: boy and girl?
0: Yeah, it cannot be. A boy smells mm-hmm. like truck and oil. Mm-hmm. A girl smells like flour. <laughs> flowers. Flour. Flower.
1: A girl smells like petal. It's
0: because baking. No, flowers. Flowers. So, yes, yeah, petal. Flowers. Anyway, I had this escape bottle, and I remember I was in line, i by myself, and I, put the, I start stuffing the escape bottle into a sock. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, kind of swinging it around. Like, this is the mindset that I have. And by the way, I'm not, I, wasn't, I hope I'm not giving the impression that I was a gangster. I was no, a you've, you've, pathetic wannabe gangster. Yeah, like, you, I had a scar face. made that clear. Okay, good. I never want people to think, like, I remember myself as like, I guess who I was was like, Tony Montana kind of a thing. I guess that's re- that was me. Kind of an Al Capone of the prepubescent white boy set. So I'm like, Okay, I got this escape sock. Like that's my mind. I'm like, there's might be my ops. My my ops might be in there. This is pre ops. They didn't say ops. My foe. And and I, I just don't even enemies. I don't have it. I mean, I had enemies, but like, I don't know what I thought I would find in there that would necessitate like a potpourri scented blackjack. But I get into the party. So that's just my mind that I bring in. Mind in line is like weapon, weapon. I get into the party and it's like this. Like I I I can't even put myself back in that kind of that level of explosion mental explosion i walk in and i'm just like what am i looking at who am i looking at who are these people there's like people in cat in the hat hats like flopping around and glow stick you know spinning and there's like rave music and lasers and trippy visuals and everybody's dancing and i start dancing like until that point like i wouldn't dance i would like kind of kind of do one of these because you know like when you're like a you're like a white wannabe like when when it comes to dancing you will prove you will prove your whiteness you're you're too left feet right here. you're not
1: going to let yourself be no. seen like that so you
0: sit on the side and you like you just kind of yeah and <laughs> all of a sudden i get into this warehouse and i'm fucking pirouetting i'm like doing Bal- barishnikov spins you know and- <laughs> And I'm just, I put the bag down with my escape weapon. It's gone. I never saw it again. Never wore escape again. I, this like gay couple comes up to me. These two guys grab me around the waist and they pick me up into the air. And they're like, you dance beautifully. And I'm like, oh shit. Like gay dudes hugging me, telling me I'm beautiful. Oh, they don't know who I am I'll let them know who I am they let me down I grabbed them and pulled them close to me kissed them both on the cheek I was like <laughs> you guys dance beautifully too and I like pirouetted off into the crowd like I'm telling you it was like a AA was a slow burn and it was maybe a more profound burn yeah of of developing this new <clears throat> me but raves was like slam like i'm a different human being from when i walked into this building to when i walked out i was changed i walked out i burned all my fila gear i bleached my hair blonde i started putting glitter in my hair wearing barrettes and got jinko jeans i just was like i this is me i am this man now and both of them weirdly started with someone coming and just putting their arms around me those two guys pigeon yeah I just needed a fucking hug yeah
1: you just needed a hug do you think going into that space it's like it's seeing people that are just letting themselves be f- like free like it's the music people because when you're dancing you're not you don't have an agenda really yeah you're just moving your fucking ass yeah and you don't feel judged
0: I think that's ex- 100% what it was it was like my whole social life was like all about being like bound by right. codes of like we look hard and you know or and I don't want anybody to see that I'm like adore i remember i used to when i was a little kid when i would look in the mirror i would make faces at myself because i was so wound up and so like and and on psychiatric medication and drugs but like i would make these like crazy i it started to make me feel like i really was as crazy as all the therapists were saying were saying i was yeah. but now i realize like i was just this like coiled spring of tension and, and and resentment and then i get to the raves it's exactly what you're saying people were fucking going nuts and free and not only free they were um Did you ever go to raves?
1: Yeah, I did. You know how
0: everybody's like kind of dressed like a child? Yeah. Like, it's a little silly. And it's part of what people laugh at about raves. I mean, I get that raves are a little silly. But that was, and it took me years to realize this, that was like exactly what I needed. Yes, there was sex and drugs and dancing all night. But there was also like this Weird mystical infantilization where I'm wearing a beret and I'm wearing a, a pacifier and I'm. Dan- I used to bring this monkey puppet to raise with me and I like dance around with the monkey puppet. Mm-hmm. I was like, I realized years after that, like, oh yeah, I missed my whole childhood.
1: Yeah, you f- you're finally getting permission to play.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right.
1: You're. That's the time. The chronology of your childhood is like so disjointed it was
0: just super arrested here and this was all super adult stuff and then all of a sudden i get into this you'd think really adult world everybody was on drugs yeah Uh, but it was also this very innocent experience of like just like you said people being free and like i found that freedom there like uh, aa and raves are like to me like inextricably linked to me becoming like the person that i am and the the, like the comedian that i am like it, it just unlocked me as a human being and it swung me over to this crazy pendulum where I was, like, a little absurd mm-hmm. to eventually, like, swing back to the middle, which is just, like, me.
1: Yeah. And you you still go to Burning Man.
0: I do still go to Burning Man. What
1: is that like for you? I mean, is it—your relationship with raves now is different, or— you... I
0: don't—I haven't been to a rave proper. I don't even know if they— what they are anymore honestly like I, I like, say, the
1: mu- like music festivals well the it?
0: music well that's what happened was that you know I started throwing parties in the 90s and we threw like the first party in San Francisco where we had um, uh, two of the headliners were Africa Bambata and uh, Grandmaster Flash and then that was new
2: okay
0: although hip hop and uh, rave music it used to be very they used to they started linked there mm-hmm. was a kind of music called hip house which is like people rapping over to house beats uh-huh. like eventually rave went its own way and and then we started throwing this party where there would be like acts from other genres right Mm -hmm. and i think this is pure speculation that that was the beginning of the like kind of festivalification of electronic dance music where Uh you would go oh this doesn't just belong in a weird underground warehouse this could belong at coachella this could belong at a stadium it 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 was the beginning of the evolution of, like, dance music becoming, like, on the radio in a big way. It was always on the radio in in Europe and stuff, but, like, to become, like, stadium acts um, and festivals. But um, Burning Man had this different thing going on. Like, when I went to Burning Man for the first time, like I said, I just thought I was going to a rave. When I got there, it was like, oh, this is, I don't know what this is, Mm -hmm. but it's it isn't a rave. It's something else. We got there. And I remember we pulled up, there was just a naked guy selling tickets and he's like, reset your tripometer when you'd get to the eight mile mark, turn right. And, and we we're like, what happened? And he's like, what happens then? He's like, you'll see it. I go, well, what if we don't see it? He's like, then you'll be lost in the desert. Burning Man was way more wild then. Yeah. And by the end of that weekend, uh, people were dead. People, somebody got run over, got his head cut off in, in a game of chicken. Um, uh, f- a um friends of mine from the rave scene got run over in their tent and were like permanently disfigured and-, and disabled Uh buildings were getting set on fire right on like the raw desert there were drive-by shooting ranges I mean it was f- it was fucking insane
1: that's nuts
0: it was n- truly nuts for me it was another experience of like walking through a portal and going oh I'm this now yeah I, I want to do this forever and what that thing gave me was this like Raves kind of started it, but Burning Man, like, sealed it, which is this feeling of, like, I want to be around people that are fucked up and weird and different and don't follow rules and live on the margins of society. Um, And, you know, they say, like, Burning Man used to be a place where weird people would go to feel normal, and now it's more of a place where normal people go to feel weird. Uh So that's kind of what's happened there. I still go, and I still love it, but it definitely has become a more sort of sanitized version of the weird thing I stepped into 25 years ago.
1: Yeah. There's some weird, like, rhetoric around Burning Man of, like, you're not the same... Like, when you go, you leave a different person. or Like, if you can survive those days. And I'm like... (laughs) What is happening? But like, it's a barter system, isn't it? Is that what people say? Is people that-
0: love to talk about the barter system, although there is no barter system. That's really never been true. What What's true is that they don't sell anything there. So okay. unlike other festivals, like you can't get a corn dog from a local vendor. So it's right? a barter system, man. You got to barter for that dog. You got to go to a man making corn dogs and say, how many beads will it take for <laughs> me to get— <laughs> So things are twenty free. minutes
1: with my wife, dude.
0: <laughs> now you're bringing it up. I know, and that's the problem. <laughs> that's the reason it's on my mind is because of a twenty minute for my wife situation for a corn dog at Burning Man 2018. It was a very bad mistake.
1: I was hungry.
0: <laughs> I regret every day that I ate that corn dog. Do
1: you camp? You camp there, right?
0: I camp there. I've gone from every, Well, I started the my first year there was uh in a tent, showering by like pushing a knife into a two-gallon bottle of water and going like this, cooking, like, dinty more chili on a sterno stove. And now I have—I own an RV. Uh, that could have been a subculture. I own an RV, and I—so and I so I have a little home that I bring every year.
1: How many nights do you, do you go there?
0: I used to go for a month because I used to work there. And so I would That's go— That's too much. You think? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's I mean, wild. It is wild. And what was really funny and wild about it was— I started to become a professional stand-up in those years. And I would tell my agents, like, hey, no work for me for the month of August because I will be working as, like, a psychedelic security guard at Burning Man. And they'd be like, what are you, truly, what are you talking about? Like, because in Hollywood, it it, it can be like, this is the only thing that matters. Yeah. And there was something about, like, just going to Burning Man and, like, getting just dirty and climbing into vehicles to search them for stowaways that made me feel like I was a real person yeah. on some level, that uh-huh. I wasn't just this, like, Hollywood beast. And so I loved it. And it, I did it that. It was
1: security you were doing there?
0: Well, I worked at a, I worked for a department called The Gate. And this is where the comedy part of me kind of fits into my Burning Man world. Because raves are, like, all plur. You know about plur? No. That's the rave credo. It's peace, love, unity, and respect. Oh, okay, sure. And, uh, it's, uh, and the ironic twist is, of course, it's very difficult to respect someone who's screaming plur over techno beats, you know? <laughs> but that was our, like, credo. Rays were, like, very hippie and very love and very positive and good vibes only, mm-hmm. right? Burning Man has a really different origin story. It starts off um, from—it uh, actually literally starts with, the, with, with LSD and, Ken K- and, and, you know, the, the, the acid revolution that changed the 60s, which shot people out into, like, a thousand different directions some were hippies some were yippies some were um uh, some were like ramdas to non-turn and dropout. and then ken kesey and the merry pranksters were like well let's go just fuck shit up let's just go be weird and that's what they did they got into a bus and they just started traveling around the country having these like weird random experiences and that led to a group called the suicide club which was in san francisco a group of artists had this secret society where they would like climb to the top of the golden gate bridge and have high tea or like um you know infiltrate the American Nazi Party, or you know, they do these like weird like events like that were weird and offbeat, but only for them. Nobody else could know about them mm-hmm. and that spun into this group called the cacophony Society, which was they wanted to do the same thing they called it culture jamming um and they invented things like Santacon mm-hmm. there the, without cacophony society, there is no Santacon. Oh, wow. they invented things like um. Uh, SantaCon, for those who don't know, is the annual festival of uh, bro, uh like white bros who vomit in bars in Santa Claus outfits. Yeah, they invented things like billboard liberation. You know the billboard liberation front. If you ever see like a billboard that's been like yeah. exactly recreated, but mm-hmm. it's with a subversive message, that's them. Flash mobs, that's them. Without cacophony society, oh, wow, they got
1: their hand in all these pots.
0: All these like weird, they call like they called the culture jamming pots, right? So that was the difference between them and the Suicide Club was that everybody was welcome. They would do it in public. They wouldn't do it for themselves.
1: Right. They were like performance art pieces. They were
0: performance art. So that you would go, what the fuck was that? You'd be walking down the street and see one of their famous pranks is like, um, you get on a bus, you're on a bus, and all of a sudden a clown gets on the bus. And you're like, okay, clown, interesting. And then the next stop, another clown gets on the bus. Or mm. Two clowns. And then all the way through San Francisco, all of a sudden you're on a bus, there's 70 clowns. You're That's like, what great. the fuck is happening? And yeah. you're going, that moment of magic, of you not knowing what's happening, of them." jamming your life that's that's what the cacophony society was about at the same time a guy named larry harvey started burning a man a, a statue of a man because it was in the air doing weird things he started burning a statue of a man on baker beach in san francisco and that event started to become an annual event it got bigger and bigger and bigger and until the cops shut it down and the cacophony society went to larry harvey and said if you want a place to burn this thing We know a spot in the desert where there's no rules and there's nobody watching and there's no cops. If you just drive, follow us six hours into Nevada, we can do whatever the fuck we want. And that's how Burning Man started. This guy, Michael Michael, a.k.a. Danger Ranger, drew a line in the dirt and in the desert and said, when you walk over this line, you come into another zone, a temporary autonomous zone is what they called it. Anyway, I say all that to say that that culture jamming spirit. Yeah was where my comedy part Mm -hmm. started to be able to be expressed like the much more cynical much more like fuck shit up kind of part of me because i'm still swinging from the pendulum of positivity violence over here i landed in the middle of like what you are a shit talking like comedian who like likes to make fun of things and so that was really big in burning man for a long time and that spirit has really dwindled but things like pranks and making fun of people in a hopefully participatory way yeah. was like a big part of Burning Man and the world that I lived in. And all of those people ended up working in one department called The Gate where we would search all the cars. It was like, the, <clears throat> like the, the TSA of Burning Man. It was like not quite magic like inside and not quite like banal like the regular world. We were the first people you saw and we would search your car. And that doesn't sound like prank making fun, but dude, we... We used to have so much fun. We used to, like, we would bring, like, a vacuum out and pretend we were vacuuming the, the desert. But we would turn—we took the filter out and turn it toward—if anybody pulled up in, like, a brand new, like, Lexus, the absurdity of that was such that we would turn the vacuum. And we would be pretending that we were hard at work, and we'd be, like, shunting in, like, a 320 PSI, like, lit, like plume of dust into the Are car. they getting
1: a kick out of this? No! it's no. It's just for you guys.
0: It's kind of for him. We're jamming— like that particular prank, yeah. I think they didn't really get a kick out <laughs> that of. That
1: is so funny.
0: But there were other things we would do. Like we had this art car called the Void. Like mm-hmm. there's art cars are a big thing at Burning Man. I'm sure you've seen them. Yes,
1: I've seen that. And also, aren't there like tribes?
0: Tri- no bands?
1: I don't know. Are there the groups that you have to like join to be able- like? I like I've heard people be like, oh, "Oh, I'm in the Brothers." Oh,
0: you mean theme camps?
1: I mean theme camps. That's
0: what you mean. And yes, there are theme camps, and the theme camps can vary wildly. Like you know, they can go all the way from like. um, a really low lo-fi like there was a stand-up camp this year and they built a like a a, a pretty cool comedy club and then they would just have shows and that was their theme camp oh, that's or there's cool. there's one that's like a, a as if a hotel and every night they hold a raffle uh, they have like luxury uh tents and themed rooms and you can win a night in that room
1: it's so creative
0: it's super creative and super fun and it go but sometimes it's not creative some yeah. of the camps are just like you know uh elon musk and like you know, uh, and other billionaires that have paid like $80,000 to have like a fully curated experience where like sex workers and cocaine and like yeah. sushi is flown into them. It goes all over the place, right? Yeah.
1: So how old are you when you, at that point, when you start kind of finding comedy?
0: I was 20, I was 21, I think, the first time I did comedy.
1: And where is that that you're doing it?
0: I was in a semester abroad and uh, it got cut short. I'd been going to college and uh, to community college. I didn't know what I wanted to be. Uh, but I was starting to like write. I, I always wanted to be a writer when I was a little kid. That's. Mm-hmm. I never was like, I'm going to be a comedian. I was like, I'm going to be a writer. I started to write these like long form monologues like Eric Bogosian and Spalding Gray. What did you want to do?
1: Well, I wanted to be a stand up. Always. Weird. I like, no, no. Really, I really wanted to be a stand up. I loved Wanda Sykes. And I remember I love I love Seinfeld. I saw Jesus's Magic when I was uh-huh. like in eighth grade, and I was like, I want to be a stand-up comedian. I started doing stand-up at NYU. Oh, cool! Um, and I
0: think that's not uncommon. Uh, I think it's about like fifty-fifty. I think fifty percent of comedians, I-, I I knew that they were going to do this when they were little kids.
1: It's strange, but then some, but then some other people they-, they just stumble into it.
0: Well, Sarah is in my stumble.
1: Sarah's in your stumble.
0: Yeah, Jesus's Magic is in there because. I, so I was writing these, like, really, like, emotional, long-form monologues. I have this monologue published about a, any, a young kid who gets, like, an HIV diagnosis and is, like, grappling. I mean, it, if, if that got out, my career is over. But it got <laughs> published. Like, I was starting to have a little bit of positive feedback uh-huh. uh, about the. But I just—I didn't know. I, did I want to be an actor? Did I want to be a—I um, thought maybe I'll be, like, Eric Bogosian, like, monologist guy. I, I didn't know. I went to uh, the semester abroad and got cut short. And, um, due to like political stuff and I came, I thought well, I'll go to New York and uh, cause I have nothing to do. My school doesn't start up again. This is 2001
2: mm-hmm.
0: or two, I think maybe okay. my school doesn't start up until uh, September cause they've cut the short and Chelsea Peretti was there. Uh, and she, I had kept in touch with cause we went to middle school together and she went to my brother's high school and oh, so I'd seen her one person show and I was, I was just, in, we used to study improv together in her basement when we were kids. Um, So maybe on some level, I knew I wanted something in the per- performance, or, but I didn't know. And she was like, I do stand up now. And I was just like, you do what? What What do you mean? Like, I just did, there was no I didn't know stand up. I knew like Eddie Murphy. I knew Janine Garofalo's half hour HBO comedy half hour. I thought like that was cool. But I was not like I just had no idea what she was talking about. And she took me to this show I called Eating Eating It Um, at I can't remember where it's in the book. Patrice O'Neal was there, was Mm -hmm. on the lineup and Sarah Silverman was on the lineup. Mm -hmm. And I, again, this is another moment where it was just like a railroad switch in my destiny. I had never seen anything like that. I couldn't believe what they were doing. Like, it was so, like, horrifying. Like, transgressive, I mean. Yeah. I remember Patrice was making fun of Michael J. Fox. He had just gotten his Parkinson's diagnosis. He was making fun of it. And I was like, you're not, you can't like my mind there was like you can't do that but another part of my mind was like you can just do jokes for that that's the only goal is like making fun Mm -hmm. and i i was like whoa like a changed person but but it was this was a one-two punch because then the next night chelsea had her own show with bobby tisdale and i went and saw her do stand up and she was great and she killed it and i was like wait i know you like, you're not those t- titans that I saw last night. Like, you're not Sarah Silverman, Patrice, and the old people that I didn't know, but I knew were a big deal.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You're like a person to me. Yeah. And that sent me. Like, I was like, okay, when you come to San Francisco for vacation, uh, I'll write, I'll have written five minutes of material. And will you take me to an open mic? And she said yes. And she did. And that was my destiny was like sealed at that point.
1: Whoa. That's I, I felt that way about Patrice. Yeah? I remember seeing him at the comic strip when people were, like, auditioning. Uh-huh. And he was, like, judging it.
0: Uh-huh. That and sounds fun. <laughs> he was
1: so—he was just eviscerating people.
0: The Probably the most, like, talented eviscerator in— comedy history, yeah. maybe in world history. Maybe we could take him out of...
1: I mean, he he, he terrified me. And I was terrified of going to the cellar because of that. Because he was at the back table just killing people. Yes. And I was terrified to even walk in the olive tree. I'm still scared to go into the olive tree, even though I've been there five years. I'm still terrified. I mean, I am too. Patrice, I remember at the comic strip, and I was telling this to Bonnie McFarlane, uh, when she came on the show, there was a comedian in New York that feels very gay and says he's straight. Uh And he auditioned. (laughs) And Patrice just said do you know that you're gay? (laughs) And he was like, and he was like, I'm not gay. And he's like, "Um, you can't get past because you don't know that you're gay. And you're never going to be funny until you realize that you're gay. And then he just left. so
0: (laughs) funny. And horrifying. Horrifying. It was
1: amazing, though. And I I felt that with Joan Rivers all the time growing up. Joan Rivers
0: was, definitely had that same energy. Where I was like,
1: I can't believe you're saying this.
0: Well, that's the thing that it was like watching Patrice and Sarah is like, they had taken a a sword and stabbed into the middle of the thing that i had been like gussying up with like confessional monologue yeah you know it was like we can just get rid of all that crap and in the middle is the is like the kernel of funny and what's interesting about that because like i said every one of these sections is a history of the whole thing yeah is that that is what happened with stand-up too stand-up used to be stand-up comes from you know farce and like, you know, theatrical performances and then, you know, Gus, like you'd be in a costume and you'd be have a set. And then someone figured out in America, uh, oh, we could get rid of everything. We could just crack out the set and the costume and the script and just take the person yeah. and put that person alone on a stage. That and feels that'll be very a show. American. It is very American. You Individual, know? right? Yeah. I am. It is me.
1: And also just like, let's just get to the good stuff.
0: But it's funny too because I did. You ever feel this way with stand-up? I always feel like, how is this an entertainment form? It's just like some person, just a just a person. Like, hey, it's me. Here's my thoughts. Like, that's your night out. Like, uh, you can go see the Red Hot Chili Peppers.
1: I, I, it's really wild when you think about it. Like, I'll have that thought sometimes when I'm like in the back of a room just watching someone. Like, they were all just listening to this person, and they've somehow met, they just. It it, it does feel like when stand-ups, when you watch a stand-up who's doing it over time, they get really good. It's like learning to play music where, like, they get there. They know the rhythm and they just—I actually felt this when I I followed you, like, two years ago here in L.A. I really had a hard time following you.
0: Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, Nothing makes me happier than that. And
1: you were complaining about how you didn't even want to do the show.
0: (laughs) But Andrew gave you a ride. What show? What was that?
1: This was like fresh out after COVID. Like I think it was. Yes. It was
0: just. I re- was it at a CrossFit gym.
1: It was. I think it was at like the Ziggy Hotel.
0: Yes, I remember. Yes, I remember. Yes. yes. And
1: the room was pretty tight. Yes. But you came on stage and it was just like you, like a, someone put on a good song.
0: Oh, that's really nice. Of and you.
1: everyone just like fell into it, and they were like, "Oh, okay, we can enjoy this." And then I went on stage and made a mess of it.
0: Well, you put um, on a bad song.
1: I put on a bad song. No. You ever have that happen? You just put on a bad song. I'm sorry.
0: No, you know, I I I tried to jam. I do remember that show. And I I actually remember that you're, I I remember your set now that you're mentioning it. And I actually think you're being overly hard on yourself. Because I remember thinking, oh, she's funny. But you know, there's. They
1: were mad the whole time I wasn't you. And I was like, I I I can't help. I can't help that I'm not him, guys. You I can used, be, go along with me on this or not.
0: I used to do it a, a line because I always had to follow this one comedian at this one club. Uh, not a comedian. I'll be name dropping today on the podcast. Um, but it was like, they, I, my first five minutes would always be me kind of counseling them on their collective grief that the other guy was no longer on stage. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, okay, well, let's just set. Th- I know you're having a hard time right now with what's happening. I don't have an option. This is... uh, I'm going to be talking for 15 minutes. We're here. I I do have a set. It will be happening. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think like uh, when you get in touch with your thing and you can do that. I mean, I have plenty of sets where I am like, oh man, where's my magic? How come I can't play the song? You know, like I know how to play this instrument. And I don't I'm, I don't know where it is right now because my ego's involved or because, you know, but when when you get, you know, that feeling of like that magic groove that you find. It's oh, the best. It's just the best. And it feels transcendental. And, you know, that's what's interesting about stand up generally. It's like, you know, we talk. I was talking about like, how is this an entertainment form? The one thing we do better than any other entertainment form, because I would posit like watching a big show is like a better total experience. Mm hmm. But there's nothing, nothing is as funny as a stand-up performance when Mm -hmm. it's going right. Nothing, nothing makes you laugh that hard. Like, no, no, I love romantic comedies and comedies. And I mean, my favorite movie ever is When Harry Met Sally, you know. And I'll laugh probably five times, ten times in the movie. And Mm -hmm. then at the end, I go, that was great. You go see Patrice for an hour, if you're not weeping, you're, you have laughed Every five seconds yeah. for the whole, and you too, and me too, like that, it's a fail if it's not like delivering these like regular laughs. That is, I think, the most powerful thing that uh, that comedy can do is elicit that reaction because that's the difference between it and music. You can't really bomb as a musician. You can just fill the bombing space with your, yeah. with your tinkling sounds. But Th- we got no space to fill. We got to wait.
1: It, that's why I fell in love with stand-up. I couldn't believe that there was something I could watch and enjoy that would make me laugh that consistently right i'm like you you could put something on that's gonna make you laugh that's nuts
0: it is a crazy thing that we go to a stage to elicit a physiological reaction again not against the will although some crowds yes against the will but it's like they're not they're there to laugh but they're not like trying to laugh you are you're pulling it out of them i mean to me that's a real there's something really uh was something magical about that. It is a superpower. I think, honestly, a lot of this book is about this feeling of superpowers. That, like, the books that I read growing up were all about these, like, weak, powerless kids who uh, thought that they had nothing. Mm-hmm. And then one day something happens or someone shows up and says, actually, you're like the most powerful person in the world. Right? Harry Potter? Like, just come out of the little cubby under the stairs uh, and... and uh, become an activist against the trans community and you (laughs) you can be like the most powerful wizard in the world oh Narnia kids walk into this closet and all of a sudden you're a king like that is the experience that I've had in these universes over and over again is like someone told me a secret and I discovered that I had way more power and way more magic than I thought that I did Mm. Uh, and that's the kind of experiences that I love
1: Whoa! how can we not end on that I'm down that's subculture vulture
0: it's available right now it's
1: available now thank you so much
0: thank you that was super fun